The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. Welcome to Media Talk. Coming up this week... The reason why we're getting emotional is because four little pop princesses have been born. This is the next big girl band. After the X Factor slumped to its lowest ratings for years, we'll ask what went wrong for the perennial ITV talent show and where the Simon Cowell creation goes next. Also in the podcast... But on these side slopes, beneath the snow, new lives are beginning. Frozen planet fakery shock or tabloid storm in a cup of iced tea. Plus, what is scampy? We look back on the most popular internet search terms of 2011. And... Fokey Doki, how the BBC got in a pickle over the Radio 2 Folk Awards. I'm John Plunkett, and this is Media Talk from The Guardian. Here with me in the pod this week, I have Neil Henderson, who is now head of media at communications agency Golin Harris, part of Interpublic, as if you didn't know that, and the writer, comedian, and Sony winning podcaster Helen Zaltzman. Good to see you both. Thanks for coming Hello. in. Thank you, John. Well, first up this week, where else to start but The X Factor? The one-time ITV ratings juggernaut is now more of a medium-sized articulated lorry. Sunday's final, which was won by Little Mix, was watched by 13 million viewers. Pretty, pretty good, as LD would say, but 4 million down on the 17 million who watched last year. Neil, by any stretch, it's not been a vintage year for The X Factor. It's not been a vintage year for the programme purely because, apart from Gary Barlow, the panel's terrible. They're still choosing the same rubbishy people with sob stories or, you know, in the case of Craig Colton having to lose 20 stone on live television. It's just not got the same buzz. You know, it needs the Simon Cowell factor. However, there's a, there's a company called Green Light who do research into adverts and, and some of the, the adverts were getting £8,000 a second and they've started using more celebrity endorsements this year. So they're actually making more money with less of an audience than they have in previous years because Ofcom have changed the rules and, you know, they're allowed to use licensed music and, and the MNS ad obviously has the X Factor people in it. So and to Lisa's um, tattoo. And to Lisa's tattoo, ad. yeah. So I mean the female boss. F- for that reason, <laughs> they're still making money out of it. And whether it's lost four million views, it doesn't matter because Simon Kyle is still still making the pennies. So financially, Helen, it's, it's going okay. ITV will be pleased with that. But what about the long-term future of the show, do you think? They must be worried about next year. Well, I would be because I think karaoke shows have had a long run in, in the sun. It's like Big Brother. After about eight series, people went off it. Maybe now that's happening for X Factor. And it'll be interesting to see if Britain's Got Talent slumps as well. And I think also interesting to see if The Voice works in January because if it doesn't, I think it could spell that people are ready to move on to something else for their mass entertainment. This is The Voice. This is the BBC One kind of X Factor. What's the USP of the voice? USP is you can't see the singers, so you have to judge them purely on the voice. So it would make great radio, but it's going to be a massive BBC One show. So it's a bit like um, uh, the the fake shake the other day in the Leveson Inquiry. All, all there will be is a picture of the back of the stage. That's not going to make great telly, is it? Everyone's going to be pixelated. It's done massively well in America, and they've got some quite high-profile judges like Will I Am, but and like, Reggie Yates presenting it. I understand. Oh, great. But like, like you were saying about this judging panel, I'm not sure there's going to be chemistry between this disparate bunch of people that they've drafted in to make this show a success. I mean, with the X Factor panel, you can't really imagine those people meeting in real life and having a conversation together at a party, say. Yeah, I mean, I think Louis Walsh has come to the end of his run. Now that Westlife is splitting up, which I was in tears about, by the way. 
I was watching. I'm sure you were. Uh, Christmas Westlife songs uh, at work today. Get and, out. And it was one with Brian in it, and I, I, it just brought a tear to my eye. Um, <laughs> but what I did think about Louis Walsh, you know, he's not effective. You know, with, with Louis, as Louis says, you know, I just don't get it with Louis anymore. And, so, um, well, farewell, Louis. You said Gary was a hit. Uh, I think Toulouse has been pretty good as well, Toulouse. She's just a bit common, though, isn't she? I mean, she's not. That's what they want, isn't on. it? They want some traction yeah. with the youth. <laughs> Well, okay. I think one thing that the show has been missing has, frankly, been scandal. I mean, previous years we've had uh, we had dodgy voting, we've had uh, dodgy contestants. I mean, I, I never thought I'd say this, but what the what the show needed this year was a was a Wagner figure or a Wagner figure, well, if you if you will. They had Caroline Flack going out with a child. That's about as much scandal as they got. <laughs> and and Frankie Cacosa. Well, he, he he flashed and and burnt and disappeared, didn't he? He broke the show's golden rule, which I think we'd all like to break at one time or another. Yeah, and he just couldn't sing. You know, he didn't have anything going from. I mean, he had all those girls' names on his on his backside, which that's prob- a one joke tattoo, isn't it? Absolutely, really? have been you know probably been erased already, or maybe he drew them on his um, himself. But uh, it just doesn't have the bite that it had. I mean, I even think Johnny Robinson was a bit of a, a step too far. He was just embarrassing. So what would you do to Helen next year? I just want to make clear that I don't want to break the show's golden rule. But next year, <laughs> you keep Barlow, but get rid of the rest? I'd, I'd keep Barlow. I don't watch it, John, personally. I'm not a fan. It makes me feel melancholy. Well, Neil, how much does the show need Simon Cowell back next time? Um, it absolutely needs Simon Cowell back. But uh, maybe a new Dermot. Dermot's nobody's favourite TV presenter, is he? Mm, but, well, in no particular order, I actually think most of the TV hosts on, on television at the moment, they're all not that great. Maybe it needs a woman, but not, Davina please, McCall. not Davina McCall and not Christine Bleakley or Adrian Charles, for that, for that matter. He's not a woman. Just breaking that to you now. Well, on now to criticism of the BBC's Frozen Planet, the acclaimed natural history documentary presented by National Treasure Sir David Attenborough. It was embroiled in a fakery row after the Mirror picked up on the fact that footage of newborn polar bear cubs was actually shot at a wildlife centre in the Netherlands rather than in the Arctic, as viewers might have thought. The criticism suggested that the commentary failed to make clear that the shots were not filmed in the wild. The BBC denied this and said the narration had been deliberately, in quotes, very general, so that viewers would not assume it referred to the specific cubs. Neil, I watched the show, as about 8 million others did. I don't think there was a single uh, iota of a suggestion that what we were watching wasn't actually happening in the, in the, in the Arctic. Well, David Attenborough uh, put it quite bluntly when he defended the act that you know the cameraman would have been killed um, had they been able to film that close. But... You know, they should have said, you know, reconstruction on screen because that's... Well, it's not reconstructed because a polar bear is being born. But, you know, making it clear that it wasn't actually in the wild because... But how do you do that? It's a, it's a clumsy technique, isn't it? Do you have a sort of, a, you know, a red, a red triangle or a natural um, history equivalent sort of flashing away in the just, corner? Just a, a, you know, a white um, Aston in, in the top right right-hand corner, you know, where, where it happened and, and the date or, so, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, but then I think it would pass BBC tests if he said, this is a polar bear being born and didn't say, this is a polar bear being born in the Arctic, mm. in the genuine Arctic. It's the right kind of fibs that they're aiming for. Helen, I imagine this isn't, well, I'm sure this isn't the only natural history programme, which, which, what's the right phrase, sort of uses a little bit of TV magic to, yeah. to bring us the experience. A, a gentle manipulation. No, I mean, the whole of Frozen Planet was filmed in Milton Keynes Snowdome. <laughs> but they kept that quiet. But I don't think it takes away from the fact that you're watching these shows and looking at things that definitely were filmed on one of the uh, polar caps and thinking, how on earth did they manage to film this? This is just incredible. And I don't think that knowing that a polar bear was actually in the Netherlands ruins the whole. And Neil, it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that the, the sort of the what's well, Daily Mirror front page story and uh, generated lots of attention, but it actually came out of a program that featured on the on the Frozen Planet website, which kind of explained how the program was put together. So they were being open about it, but not necessarily on BBC One. Well, everybody's looking for a storm, aren't they? 
you know, the Daily Mail is always looking for a BBC storm. The, the Mirror always looking to have a go at, at the BBC and ITV. Um, and I think largely with, with this one, after what happened with the Queen when Peter Fincham lost his job as a result of changing that programme, print are always looking for ways to have a go at the at, at programming if they're not 100% confident in, 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 in their editorial or, or, or content. BBC Director General Mark Thompson said that uh, suggested some of the tabloid criticism was, uh, was prompted by the BBC's own coverage of the Leveson Inquiry and they were sort of getting a little bit of revenge in there. <laughs> what did you make of that? Misjudged? Or does he got a point? It, it, it seems a, a little bit desperate, but I think Neil's right that uh, the BBC is always under fire for something if they can find a grist for that mill. But I think to expect that no kind of editorial decision-making has gone into documentary and that it's all completely as it happens in the world is maybe a little bit naive. I mean, they leave out the boring bits. So manipulation has happened already. What about the damage to the Frozen Planet brand? Anything at all, do you think? I thought you were going to say the, fr- the Frozen Food brand. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no I, like one, one I, spin-off BBC Worldwide, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, no, I, mean, I think it, it's one of the most beautiful programmes I've ever watched. God forbid if David Attenborough ever retires or or you know dies because I don't think that kind of programming will continue on the, on the BBC because it's it's you know it's high budget and you know when the BBC are looking to make cuts it's things like that that potentially could be at risk personally I can't take any more penguins really have you had enough yep, you've seen it, them march you've seen them in the cold you've seen them getting snowed on with an egg and if i seen one, if i see one more killer whale taking out a seal you know by sort of tossing it over its shoulder if if killer whales have shoulders what about a panda it's one too many a panda what being killed by a killer whale i paid i paid watch that <laughs> it's the black and white fight everyone's been waiting for Let's stay with matters BBC. To have issues with one award ceremony is unfortunate, but two, well, that's just careless. After the ongoing fallout from the all-male sports personality of the year shortlist, the BBC has raised further hackles by refusing to divulge the identity of the judges behind the Radio 2 Folk Awards. That's the Oscars of the folk world. The show's producers deny the request from blogger Emma Hartley to reveal the judges' names, citing the need to prevent lobbying from the, open quotes, better-off record companies. Not that they've traditionally had anything to do with folk music, you might think. Emma Hartley tried again, this time with an FOI request, which merited the same response, which was, in essence, folk off. Uh, To be specific, they refused to comply with the request because the judges' identity was being held back for the purposes of journalism, art or literature. Now, Helen, folk isn't journalism or literature, so presumably that makes it art. I suppose not, and the answer she got does reflect the fact that the folk world is very small, and a lot of the judges are also involved in folk at Radio 2, or are the agents of the acts that are nominated. There's about 180 judges, I think they said, and there's not a very big pool from which to choose them, so that seems to be the uh, insinuation here. Neil, what do you make of this? Bit of a known goal here? It's a bit dull, isn't it? I mean, has she not got anything better to do than write asking for FOI requests about that? For goodness sake. Well, she writes a blog about folk, and uh, this is a big folk news story. And when they come along, you've got to jump on them. The Eurozone is about to crash. Nothing to do with folk. There are more people out out of work than ever before, and she's. Again, not a folk music story. But however, in, in, in the defence of the BBC, I have to say that, you know, there, there's a list of the Sony Award judges for radio. There's a list of the BAFTA Award judges, but you don't know which awards they're judging, so you can't influence them at all. And I think that's right. I think the Folk Awards, the judges should be kept secret purely because it makes it fair. And there's you know, there's so much corruption in the world today that maybe it's good that the Folk Award judges aren't, aren't revealed. But she needs to get a life. 
well, maybe she should switch on the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Awards, which is facing the prospect of a boycott by some athletes and the continued fallout over their lack of women on their, uh, on their shortlist. Neil, this is a, a PR disaster that's going to hang heavy over the awards, uh, which are uh, next week, I think. It's meant to be a big celebration of the BBC North in Salford, where the, where the awards are going to be filmed. How do you think the fallout's going to affect the sports personality? Well, I, I mean, I think the, the, the sports personality award, its kind of credibility has been eroded by this because, um, you know, it just doesn't reflect at all the, the broader world of sport. I mean, I do think that talking about bringing an, an award for Gary Speed would be very timely. I think that's a, a good idea. But when you have a panel uh, of mainly male northern sports correspondents who generally watch football and rugby it is unfortunate that they're not voting for some of our top uh, female talent and it, it really does leave a nasty taste for the sports personality awards because it's a great brand and it's great for sport and it's it is quite sad but let's face it it is more aimed at men and there's so much more money in men's sports than women's and perhaps those in charge think that there isn't the interest in women's sports but the bbc is going to be covering the olympics next year and i think that they have to reflect the fact that you know a lot of women watch sport as well and and there has to be you know some of the the, the people who've, who've had a, a great last year some of the athletes you know rebecca adlington for example i think her win just crossed over the line for when the judges uh, made the decision but i think that you know, there has to be a good balance there. Is it worse, though, to have what they genuinely think are the right candidates or to have positive discrimination and token women in the lineup? It's a pickle. It is a pickle, but the BBC obviously reflects its audience and it has to reflect women who've done well in sport in, in that previous year. And I think people have got a right to complain about this. I think the own goal was having Nuts and Zoo on the, on the, the uh, <laughs> nominations committee for the, for the sports person. I mean, they are sports magazines, but probably only, uh, it's indoor only sports. In, in a superficial yeah. sense. Maybe women boycotted it when they heard about that. <laughs> or maybe they should call it the personality of the year award and bring in people like Sam Fairs from The Only Way is Essex just to kind of brighten, you, up, brighten it up a bit. Yeah. You're losing me now now. Uh, well, uh, let's hope there's some female winners at the Folk Awards. But let's move on. The Leveson Inquiry has continued this week with the News of the World's former editor Colin Myler and News International's former legal chief Tom Crone among those being questioned. I caught up with The Guardian's head of media and technology Dan Sabber for his take on the week's events. Colin Myler gave a kind of interesting, rather rounded set of evidence and I think one of the issues with all the News of the World people who were giving evidence this week is that on one level they all sort of talked fine game about sort of ethics and following the PCC code and so forth and Neil Wallace did something, who's was deputy of the News of the World, did something similar on Monday and I think the problem with that is, and of course I'm not saying these people are anything less than close adherence to the PCC code, but the point is that where Leveson is at its weakest is where it talks about generalities. And if you ask anybody to say, you know, are you a sort of, you know, fine, moral, upstanding person who follows all the rules? And they'll always say yes, and why not? What you really need to do, and so much journalism is about sort of tough and fine judgment, so that's why you really need to test people out. The interesting point about Colin Myler, though, was when he was sort of really tested out on a specific, and this was really what he knew about phone hacking in 2008 and what he knew about phone hacking in 2009, began to become a bit unstuck. In 2008, we had this fateful meeting with James Murdoch where they signed off this enormous payment for Gordon Taylor, £700,000, to settle this phone hacking case. As part of all that was this wonderful Fenevel email, the email that supposedly showed that phone hacking went wider at the news of the world and that this hacking email was one that, you know, he, Colin Myler, was aware of and the question was really how, how far was James Murdoch aware with it and whether he should initiate an inquiry. 
But then in 2009, a year later, when The Guardian published its first reports about phone hacking being widespread, you know, Milo writes a letter to the PCC in August 2009 and kind of says there's nothing to be sort of seen here and we haven't got any evidence of wider phone hacking. And so he's sort of dancing around saying, on the one hand, in 2008, I knew the single rogue report of defence wasn't really true. And in 2009, wow, the Guardian report was overcooked, he writes to the PCC. And it wasn't really clear which one the real Colin Milo was. And he was also asked on specifics about the McCann diaries and how they came to be published uh, without Madeleine McCann's consent. It was interesting there about the, uh, how the, it would appear the, uh, the, the inner workings of the, the, the news of the world functioned. It was very interesting. We heard from two people. We heard from Colin Myler. Colin Myler seemed to think that they had permission from the McCanns to publish these diaries. I must say, I think he, he must have known that publishing anyone's diaries, and particularly in that situation, was a high-risk story. He seemed to think they had permission to do it and was very upset to discover that they didn't. Uh, the reporter, a chap called Daniel Sanderson, was also giving evidence at the other end, right at the other end of the food chain, junior reporter, and he was saying whose job it was, he'd been sort of handed the diaries, had gone to sort of you know, get the diaries physically. They had been translated by the cops, it would seem, into, into Portuguese, and then he had, to, he had the job of basically taking them from the Portuguese, retranslating them into English, checking them, producing a transcript and writing it all up. And, but it wasn't his job, as he said, sounds it wasn't his job to go and get permission from the Macau's to run them. He assumed that was a news desk's job in broad terms. You know, he wrote up the diaries and they published, and he also found to his surprise that he didn't have permission. So it's a kind of odd kind of organisation in which neither the top or the bottom, and one could forgive the bottom but not really the top, seemed to really know what was going on in the middle. Separately, Lord Leveson has announced uh, setting up of a separate inquiry, but related, of course, into exactly what happened with the hacking of Millie Dowler's phone. Ah, well, this is, a, this is a complex subject, and to be honest, a little bit difficult for The Guardian here. I mean, this goes back to our reports in, uh, on, on July 4th and 5th of this year, where we reported principally that Millie Dowler's phone had been hacked into. Obviously, she was a murder schoolgirl, was missing and found dead in 2002, tragically. We had reported that her phone had been hacked into, and secondly, that voicemails left for her were deleted by the News of the World so they could listen to more messages. Now... As the police investigation has sort of deepened and the cops are subject this to a kind of real forensic process, what we've since learned is that, yes, her phone was hacked into, but she went missing on March 21st, 2002. And there was some hacking done by the News of the World somewhere around early to mid-April 2002. The problem is that there were some messages that we had thought had been deleted that gave the family false hope that Millie was still alive. And this moment, which we thought had happened in April, actually happened on March the 24th three days after Millie went missing and we heard Sally Dowler actually talk about it at Levinson but it looks like now that that was so soon after Millie disappeared that we can't be sure and there's some confusing evidence here but it looks like it wasn't the case that those messages were deleted and in fact a lot of messages did or weren't deleted as a function of, of hacking actually a lot of messages were deleted we don't know why and so that part of that aspect of the Guardian's reporting although it was done in good faith at the time has not proven to be accurate and we were the first paper on Saturday last week to to report the change set of circumstances but it's really blown up into a bit of an issue this week. And subsequently there's been no shortage of coverage in, in other papers suggesting that the Guardian made a big mistake with that reporting and maybe saying that the, it was responsible for the, for the closure of the news of the world maybe that shouldn't have happened. Uh, look there's no doubt there's no doubt although it was reported in good faith at the time and with sourcing to back it up uh, there's no doubt that that 
that suggestion that there were deletions that gave the family false hope that Millie was still alive now looks to be incorrect. And you know, so we've you know reported that. And sure, there's been you know no shortage of people of, of critics and and people wanting to say, yeah, the Guardian's made a serious mistake. And and as you say, that the news of the world shouldn't have been closed. I think it's a bit. It really is a bit rich to say that the news of the world shouldn't have been closed, given that the central point of the story, you know, was that Millie Dowler's phone was hacked into. That was correct. That there was an awful lot of other reporting at the time of other victims of, of crime or circumstance. Seven, seven victims and parents of the Sam girls. They were also hacked into. That was something the Telegraph reported on. We now know that there are 800 victims of hacking. Uh, we now recent only recently News International is paying out 200,000 pounds to Tessa Jowell, former culture secretary's victim of hacking. You know, we have inquiries about corrupt payments to police officers. We have a whole range of issues around criminality that are sort of still ongoing that I think far outweigh a what was nevertheless a genuine error. So for sure that aspect was wrong, but I think uh, the wider picture is that, you know, remains that there were you know a lot of issues for the news of the world. Dan Sabah there. And finally this week, what better way to round off 2011 than a horrifying, sorry, fascinating glimpse into the nation's psyche thanks to Google's latest zeitgeist lists. These are the most popular search terms and queries entered into Google over the last 12 months, topped by some things that did happen, like the royal wedding, and some things that didn't, like the iPhone 5. The new media talk theme tune wasn't as high as I'd expected, but never mind. Neil, first up, what leapt out for you? Uh, I think the fact that 2012 Olympic tickets wasn't the top search for tickets. I mean, we had such a a furore over people not being able to buy tickets, websites being frozen, and then train tickets comes higher and tickets for Arsenal matches comes higher than the the biggest ticket in town. Did we know where the Olympics Um, were ranked at all? Were they the top um, ten? Number two. But, you know, I think that you just wonder about some of these searches because the, one of the top sports searches was uh, the David Hay fight. And you would think that there's many more big events coming up and earlier in this year that would have maybe warranted a you know a higher position on the on, on, on the rankings. Well, I just wonder, though, whether people were using several different combinations of Olympic tickets to search. So that's why it didn't display. And, and are these the, Yeah, exactly. Are these the international results? These are all UK based. Oh, really? Maybe people aren't as interested as you think they are. But when they searched for AV... That know. was encouraging, in one yeah, sense, because absolutely. people wanted to find out. And then yeah. discouraging because it meant that no one they had any idea what it meant. <laughs> but it was actually people searching for what does AV mean on my TV remote control, not what... Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think, and also being placed is not necessarily a good thing. I saw the Groupon, for instance, was the fourth fastest rising search. But that might be because they're being investigated by the Office of Fair Trading and people wanted to find out what on earth was going on. It could be a positive, it could be a negative. Helen, any particular, uh, were you were you taken by the, the what is or, or how to list? I liked the, uh, I think the top how to was how to revise, followed by how to, to snog. <laughs> yeah. two, two activities that go hand in hand. Do people still practice snogging on their hand? I mean, did you do that when you were? You should Google it to find out. Yeah, no, I didn't. I That's not what people did where I grew up. They, they had butlers for that kind of thing. Uh, I was, was like I'm getting at my canvas zone here. But, uh. <laughs> I, I thought um, it was interesting that Ryan Dunn figured so highly because I hadn't heard of him until he died. I mean, obviously, being dead is a good way to get into the Google zeitgeist because uh, Steve Jobs, of course, and Amy Winehouse are both in it. But Ryan Dunn is one of the lesser known members of the Jackass team and he died in a car crash earlier this year. And I thought in the UK that wouldn't have the, the pull that it has had. Yeah, well, I think, I think you, you've, touched a, you've touched a nerve there. I think you can tell how old you are, uh, uh, how old you are, or by how, by how down with the kids you are, by um, how many names you actually recognise in, in the fastest rising top ten. I've got to confess, I only knew five of them. And I think that probably Ryan Dunn wasn't one of the five that I recognised. Old so. man Plunkett. Uh, but I think uh, Ryan Dunn was older than you. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. So, yeah. 
tributes Stuart's pour in. Yeah. Right, yes. Yeah. So what is this jackass you speak of? Um, and only one bloke in the top ten celebrities. Can, do you know that top of your head? Who would you think it would be? Gervais. Oh, in, with a, in with a bullet in with a bullet is yeah. it because you read it yeah I did read yeah. it I, it's not because I've been searching for him incessantly all year yeah I was surprised by that do you that. think his Twitter controversies of which there's another one I read today talking oh, about Jesus no. Christ oh it's so tedious so tedious think of something else Ricky Gervais oh you can't uh, uh, next year it'll be the big man on the train that, that'll come out as, as next year right yeah and yeah. then the women on the, on the tram Etc. Etc. I'm tempted to ask, was he right to throw the chap off? But I were definitely getting off topic there. So um, I guess there's one thing, Neil, that uh, people were searching for that hasn't come up on this list. I think probably uh, Google removed it to save our sensitivities, uh, and that's um, porn. Yeah, absolutely. And and YouTube. I think if there was a list on YouTube, that would be interesting as well, because um, I was reading some data recently that that's the most searches on YouTube uh, for for porn films uh, at the moment, because people can get through firewalls at work, for example. Not that I've tried it. And just finally, uh, Helen, I'm, I'm sure you can help me out with this. The, the second most asked what is question, I think, was what is scampi? <laughs> and there's some uh, debate whether it's a, a small lobster or a big prawn or some kind of uh, langoustine. What's there, going on here? There are regional variations, John. So in some places it would be prawn in the shape of a larger prawn in breadcrumbs. Other places it is a langoustine breaded. Depends where you're from. Is but that right? I wonder why it's such a hot topic. I don't know why I should go and Google it. Maybe, this is, maybe there is some incredible adult material that it's code for. Is it in a basket, though? Because we don't get scampi in a basket anymore. I think that should be brought back next year. Hygiene nightmare baskets. Well, it's, uh, this media talk brought to you by Bernie Inns. Um, <laughs> Helen Zaltzman, thank you very much. Thank and you. Neil Henson, thank you. Thank you. Do give us your feedback on anything you've heard today, particularly your views on scampi at guardian.co.uk slash media talk, or drop in over on our Facebook group. The producer this week was Ian Chambers, and I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.